Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the resurrection and the cross. Jesus. It's Easter Sunday. It was, at least, uh, last Sunday, and so this will be our Easter episode. And we haven't really talked too much about Jesus on this program. And that's actually for a reason. It's because uh, that's a very contentious issue. It's not uh, critical for open theism. And a lot of different open theists have varying beliefs on the meaning of Jesus, the meaning of the cross, uh, the different theories of atonement. And so open theism can support all these various views. So militantly siding with one view over another, that's not really an open theist issue. In addition to this, it's not like one's view of the atonement, one's view of the cross, that, that's like a make or break issue. It's not like, oh, I believe in God, I follow Jesus, I follow Yahweh, I, I tr love him and I serve him. Oh, but instead of the penal theory of uh, substitution, atonement, I believe in Christus Victorus, I get to heaven, and they're like, nope, that's not it. You didn't get that uh, right theory of atonement down. You're going to hell. Bye-bye. See you. It always cracks me up. Like, like, even in anything, when people are like, not only, not only do you have to believe the right thing, but you have to believe that everyone has to believe the right thing in order to be saved. Like, let's say there's a guy who's like faith alone, and he says, okay, so you have to have faith, right? And in addition to that, you have to believe that all you need is faith. Or like a works guy. And he says, okay, it, you have to do good works and have faith to be saved. But in addition to that, you have to believe that you have to have good works and have faith to be saved. It's, it's like this regression. And they say, if you don't believe these right things about doctrine, uh, then you're out. Even if you do and believe all the other right things, if you believe the wrong things about your belief, then you're hellbound. And sometimes you just sit back and you're like, is this what Christians have resorted to arguing about? Do these people really believe these things? It's lunacy. It sounds like lunacy to me. So in the past, when people have asked me about my ideas about atonement, it really doesn't matter. It's, it's not a major consideration in the Bible, these deep-seated theories. And often advocates of the various theories, they, they, they turn to various vague proof texts and they try to make too much out of too little. If the Bible really cared about these in-depth theories, it would have expounded upon that. With that being said, let's uh, figure out what the early Christians, the early Christians themselves, believed about how the cross worked. Now, let's recall, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, came to earth and he preached a coming kingdom of God. In this kingdom of God, the angels would round up the wicked and punish the wicked and the righteous would be glorified. God himself would come down and reign and we see hints of that not only in Old Testament apocalyptic texts, but even in Revelation 21, where heaven is merging with earth and God and Jesus will reign forever in the eternal kingdom of God. That was Jesus's ministry. Jesus's ministry was not about himself. It was not about his uh, atoning sacrifice on the cross. He didn't preach about those things. And when people asked Jesus who he was, he purposely told them not to tell anyone who he was. So Jesus's ministry was not about himself. It was about the kingdom of God. 
So when you're looking for authors who are trying to give you a biblical idea of what's going on in the text, that, that could be like one of your filters. What do they claim about Jesus's gospel, Jesus's ministry, what Jesus was trying to preach, and does it line up with what the Bible says? And there's a few authors who this actually works for. Bart Ehrman, who's an atheist, he wrote Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, where he explains Jesus's ministry of the coming kingdom of God. There's Aslan's Zealot. And of course, on the Christian scale, you got N.T. Wright, The Day the Revolution Began. Of course, on this program, we've already interviewed Richard Middleton and his book, A New Heaven and a New Earth, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology. I suggest everyone go out, buy that book, read that book. It's an excellent book. Just a basic introduction to the overall message of the Bible. This renewed heaven and renewed earth that we are to live in eternally. And N.T. Wright points this out as well in his book that these ideas that a lot of modern Christians have, it's like you die and you go to heaven and you escape the body. It's, that's Platonism. That's, that's not in the Bible. The Bible, our hope is in a restored earth. It's not escape from the body. It's not that our flesh is corrupted and so we need to escape the flesh. No, our eternal hope is in the restored earth. I'm going to play a real quick clip from The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright. This is not N.T. Wright speaking. This is someone who was hired to read the book. Just keep that in mind. That vision of a non-bodily ultimate heaven is a direct legacy of Plato and of those like the philosopher and biographer Plutarch, a younger contemporary of St. Paul, who interpreted Plato for his own day. It is Plutarch, not the New Testament, despite what one sometimes hears, who suggested that humans in the present life are exiled from their true home in heaven. That vision of the future, an ultimate glory that has left behind the present world of space, time, and matter, sets the context for what, as we shall see, is a basically paganized vision of how one might attain such a future, a transaction in which God's wrath was poured out against his Son rather than against sinful humans. That's just a kind of a clip, but he talks about this and develops this idea a lot more. And this is also developed in Middleton's book. In one of the appendices, he talks about the Platonic influences in the church, which is, have led to this widespread notion that we all ascend to a spiritual realm. And not a biblical idea. The eternal hope was in a restored earth, the day of Yahweh, the day of judgment, the coming kingdom of God. And N.T. Wright makes the very valid point that our eschatology, our idea of our ultimate destination, that affects how we view the cross. But let's turn to Acts now. Acts now is our earliest accounts of people's conceptions of the cross. And it's going to be pretty surprising what Acts teaches to most Christians. Turning to Acts 1, Acts 1, 3, it says, He, which is Jesus, he presented himself alive to them, the disciples, after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus dies, he is resurrected, and then he preaches to his disciples. So what does he preach about? Does he preach about himself? Does he preach about atonement? Does he preach about the idea of the cross? No. Instead, he continues his previous gospel, this coming kingdom of God. So he speaks about the kingdom of God. And guess what? These people... His disciples, what do they ask him? What, what's their questions to him? It says in Acts 1.6, And so when they had all come together, they asked him, Lord, 
will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Everyone's being taught about the kingdom of God. His disciples are wondering when this kingdom of God is going to be restored in Israel. This is what's being taught. Not theories of atonement, not theories of how, what Jesus' death meant. It's this coming kingdom of God. And N.T. Wright gets it. Bart Ehrman gets it. Bart Ehrman sounds a lot like N.T. Wright at times. It's pretty interesting. But here's a quote from Bart Ehrman's book. And this is uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary Magdalene. And this is talking about Luke. This is talking about atonement. This is talking about this early Acts 2 account in which Jesus' death is discussed. He says, Why then for Luke did Jesus have to die, if not as a sacrifice for sins? When you read through the speeches in Acts, the answer becomes quite clear. It doesn't matter whether you look at Paul's speeches or Peter's, since if you recall, all these speeches sound pretty much alike. They were, after all, written by Luke. Jesus was wrongly put to death. This was a gross miscarriage of justice. When people realize what they or their compatriots did to Jesus, they are overcome by guilt, which leads them to repent and ask for forgiveness, and God forgives them. Thus, Jesus' death for Luke is not an atonement for sins. It is an occasion for repentance. It is the repentance that leads to the forgiveness of sins and thus a restored relationship with God. See, for example, Peter's first speech in Acts 2, 37-39. This is fundamentally different from the doctrine of atonement, such as you find in Paul. Of course, Bart Ehrman is not a Christian, so take what he says with a grain of salt. But listen to what he's saying, listen to his argument, and let's read Acts 2 and see what their idea of the atonement was. Just these early Christians who in Acts 1, they just spent 40 days with Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead, taught him for 40 days, taught him about the kingdom, right? Is he teaching him about atonement? It doesn't sound like he is, because you don't really get a sense of Jesus' death morphing into the ideas that you have now. You don't get that until Paul comes on the scene. Starting at Acts 2.22, this is Peter speaking. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth... A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So notice the guilt that he's attributing to this audience. This audience needs to understand that Jesus did not deserve this punishment and they're responsible for that punishment. And this fits the Ehrman motif that he talked about of guilting them to repentance. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. Skipping down to verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and have received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. To Peter and the disciples, Jesus' death serves as an object lesson for repentance. Repentance to Yahweh belief in Jesus as the Messiah, and 
initiation into this coming kingdom of God, this kingdom of God taught by Jesus in the 40 days that Jesus was with the disciples. To the earliest disciples, Jesus' death was a tragedy, one that we could get an object lesson from. Jesus escaped the bounds of death due to his particular status, and that gives us hope for this eternal life, this coming kingdom of God, the initiation into the kingdom. And one more Ehrman quote, this is going to be extended, this is going to be him actually speaking. This is one of his lectures on the historical Jesus. But one more quote, last Ehrman quote, I promise, and then we'll start quoting N.T. Wright. And they say very similar things, so give Ehrman a listen, consider what he is saying. Well, for a Jewish apocalypticist, there wouldn't be any fuzzy notion at all about it. It'd be crystal clear what it would mean for a man to be raised from the dead. Remember what Jewish apocalypticists believed. They believed that this was an evil age, that God was soon going to intervene, overthrow the forces of evil, and bring in a day of judgment. And on that day of judgment, at the end of this age, when this age, when the time had been fulfilled for this age to end, there was going to be a resurrection of dead people. If that's what a person believes, and they come to think that Jesus was raised from the dead, they would draw an obvious conclusion. The resurrection of Jesus shows that the end of our age has begun already. This, in fact, was the conclusion that the early Christians drew. We know this because we have some of their writings. The earliest author we have in the New Testament was the Apostle Paul. He's writing about 20 years after Jesus' death, but he's our earliest author. It's striking what he thinks of Jesus' resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tries to convince his Corinthian readers that there's going to be a future resurrection. Some people by this time had already begun to deny that that was going to happen. Paul wants to show that it will happen, and he does so by showing, that Je by, by showing them that since they think Jesus was raised from the dead, they necessarily have to think that there is a resurrection of the dead. In that context, Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first fruits of the resurrection, what does that mean? In fact, it's an agricultural image. When farmers uh, harvest their crops, the first day of the harvest, they go out, they bring in the crops, and that night they have a festival, a party. The, um, they, they celebrate the first fruits. The next day, then, of course, they go out and collect the rest of the harvest. By calling Jesus the first fruits, Paul is saying that he's the first to rise from the dead, and the rest is going to come soon. So, these apocalyptic Jews naturally thought they were living at the end of time. This was confirmation of Jesus' message that the end was imminent. In addition, though, these early followers of Jesus must have found it to be uh, supremely significant that it was Jesus who was the first one raised. Jesus, then, was thought to have inaugurated the beginning of the end. The early disciples concluded on these grounds that the end had started and that God had chosen Jesus to defeat the cosmic forces of evil that were aligned against him. They thought, in fact, that Jesus had been exalted to heaven, but that he was soon to return in judgment on the earth. For these people, the resurrection of Jesus just didn't mean that his body got reanimated. It meant that God had reversed Jesus' death. Death was destroyed, 
Jesus was brought back to life, not to die again like Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or other people in the Bible who get raised from the dead. For the early Christians, Jesus was raised from the dead, and he's not going to die again. He's in heaven now with God, and he's going to come back in judgment on the earth. Long quote and a lot to digest, but let's cover some key facts. First of all, apocalypticism. Jesus was apocalypticist. All his followers that were following him were flocking to him to hear about this coming kingdom of God. John the Baptist had pre preached this before. There were different Jewish prophets throughout just Roman history during that time frame that rose up declaring the end of days, the day of the Lord, day of Yahweh, judgment, this new kingdom of God coming to earth. It's apocalypticism. So how do they take Jesus' death? Jesus' death is a precursor to the resurrection of Israel corporate, right? In which the righteous are raised, they're vindicated, the wicked are punished. And what proof do we have? Jesus defeats death. This is an initiation into the kingdom. The kingdom is small now, yes. We're being integrated into kingdom morality, Yes, this is what Jesus taught about kingdom morality, how we should act in anticipation of the coming kingdom. And now this death and resurrection is our first sign, our first hope of this coming kingdom. And I left that last part in with a vermin's quote because it's, it's very important. This is just not like a normal resurrection. This is a resurrection in which Jesus ascends to heaven and now reigns with God and is going to return with God. So this is a defeat of death, and you know, like Lazarus, he's going to die again. Yeah, he did die again, of course, 2,000 years later, he's dead. But Jesus is not going to die again. This is the defeat of death, and this is our eternal hope. Jesus' eternal resurrection gives us our hope for eternal life, as that Paul quote that Ehrman gave. N.T. Wright is very quick to point out that the death and resurrection of Jesus is not about individual salvation. It's not about, oh, what's in it for me? This is about a global change in world events. This is about a renewal of the earth. This is about the seeds of the coming kingdom. Uh, like the Calvinists, the Reformed, they tend to say, oh, it's all about personal salvation and his death was an atonement for your sins, your personal sins. If you pray uh, and you accept these certain doctrines, then your sins go away and you can ascend to heaven. Well, you know, there, there's some elements of sacrificial atonement and N.T. Wright, he says that he believes in the penal substitution theory of atonement, but that's just a very small part of the total meaning of Jesus's death. The total meaning of Jesus's death is more summed up in this change of world events, this initiation into the kingdom, this renewal of the world. So let's hear from N.T. Wright, or the guy who was paid to read his book. This confusion, as I shall be suggesting, gets in the way of what is arguably the most important thing. The New Testament insists in book after book that when Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, something happened as a result of which the world is a different place. And the early Christians insisted that when people are caught up in the meaning of the cross, they become part of this difference. You wouldn't necessarily guess this from many of the debates and reactions that I've just sketched, or, sadly, from the way many Christians and many churches have sometimes behaved. But it's what the first Christians thought, said, and taught. Jesus' crucifixion was the day the revolution began. 
In particular, they seem to have interpreted Jesus' crucifixion within a much bigger and perhaps more dangerous story than simply the question of whether people go to heaven or hell. That question, in fact, to the astonishment of many people, is not what the New Testament is about. The New Testament, with the story of Jesus' crucifixion at its center, is about God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. This is, after all, what Jesus taught his followers to pray. That is a rather obvious piece of evidence, though people regularly ignore it in practice. However, it points us in the direction I shall be following as we try to figure out what exactly happened on the cross and why it launched a revolution that continues to this day. There's a lot of good things that N.T. Wright writes. He understands early Christianity. He understands the dynamics. He understands the national expectations, the national focus of these various promises. And Calvinists hate him for it. They just hate him for it. I just witnessed an N.T. Wright post on one of these Calvinist Facebook pages, and they, they just all circle around. Uh, they swim in like piranhas. And they're all like, ah, oh, he's a heretic. Ah, oh, we hate this guy. Ah, oh, he's just a heretic. And, th and they don't actually discuss his views. I don't think they've ever listened to maybe his sermons on Romans. He's got an entire Roman series. They don't know how to respond. And so their only accusations are heresy. Oh, because, because they can't debate something, they just have to denounce the person in the strongest possible terms they can, and, and everything's a heresy. Oh, you're a heretic if you don't believe whatever ever. It's just crazy. This is crazy. But this next clip I'm going to show you is basically N.T. Wright's own summary of his book, and I think this is fairly accurate. I haven't actually read the entire book. I've listened to a lot of it, read a lot of it, but not the entire thing. First, it seems clear to me that once we replace the common vision of Christian hope, going to heaven, with the biblical vision of new heavens and new earth, there will be direct consequences for how we understand both the human problem and the divine solution. Second, in the usual model, what stops us from going to heaven is sin, and sin is dealt with, somehow, on the cross. In the biblical model, what stops us from being genuine humans, bearing the divine image, acting as the royal priesthood, is not only sin, but the idolatry that underlies it. The idols have gained power, the power humans ought to be exercising in God's world. Idolatrous humans have handed it over to them. What is required for God's new world and for renewed humans within it is for the power of the idols to be broken. Since sin, the consequence of idolatry, is what keeps humans enthralled to the non-gods of the world, dealing with sin has a more profound effect than simply releasing humans to go to heaven. It releases humans from the grip of the idols so they can worship the living God and be renewed according to his image. All this is very abstract, but in the Bible it becomes startlingly concrete. In the Bible, God's plan to deal with sin, and so to break the power of idols and bring new creation to his world, is focused on the people of Israel. In the New Testament, this focus is narrowed to Israel's representative, the Messiah. He stands in for Israel, and so fulfills the divine plan to restore creation itself. That is the very short version of the story we shall be telling for the rest of this book, 
a revolutionary story in which all Jesus's followers are caught up. I like some of the concepts here that he lays out here. So we have Israel, and they are in spiritual exile from God, and Jesus comes, and Jesus is a representative of Israel. And Jesus dies for Israel, so such that Israel can be restored to their historical place in God's ultimate plan. And his place is a vocation. It's not everyone just be nice and be moral, and there's this moral code that everyone has to follow. It, it's a vocation. And this is what Paul really gets at throughout his ministry. He says, you know, it's not important just following all these laws, this, this ritual following of code. What's really important is focusing your life on Jesus and then letting your actions flow from that. You know, Paul was often accused of preaching antinomianism, lawlessness. And he said, well, that's not accurate. There's reasons why people shouldn't sin. It, it's not this, uh, this fear from being cast out of the kingdom of God, not being part of this Jesus movement. But the reason is because we are supposed to focus on Jesus and our lives should reflect that. You know, we should be grateful for what he did. We should understand this coming kingdom and we should conform ourselves to this expectation. And Paul really did continue on this kingdom preaching. Look up the kingdom of God. Look at how Paul uses it throughout his writings. And there's an excellent article, Paul and the Kingdom of God. It's, it, there's, it's by a Baptist. You could just uh, Google it, pull down the PDF. And it's interesting how he uses the kingdom of God. And... Throughout growing up, there's a lot of people that I knew who claim that the earth is for the Jews and heaven is for the Gentiles and there's these two kingdoms and they're going to live eternally separately from each other. That's not what Paul was getting at. He's not saying we're going to have an eternity in heaven and the Jews are going to have eternity on earth. It's the same place. We have the same eternal hope. And I'd point everyone to that sketchbook on Romans. I, I, I like that sketchbook on Romans. It's it's a YouTube video that covers just the flow and outline and thoughts of Romans. And it talks about how Paul viewed the Gentiles and the Jews. They're, they're part of the same kingdom, yes. And there is a distinction between Gentiles and Jews. Remember, Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. The Gentiles aren't Jews, but they're fellow members and fellow heirs of the body. And ultimately, there's a special place in God's future kingdom, which Paul does not explain in Romans. And this special place is for the Jews, where Israel's going to be restored. The Roman sketchbook video it covers this. Paul is not specific in this future difference. But for right now, recall in the Galatians where Peter tries to eat separately from the Gentiles and Paul condemns him that he's been untrue to the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is this kingdom of God on earth in which God is coming back, in which God's kingdom is here, which all God's people are gonna to live together in peace and harmony. And Jews and Gentiles could sit down together at the same tables and eat. They are equal before God. I'll leave the audience with one more clip from N.T. Wright. Uh, we're kind of running out of time here, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff in the book. Uh, get the book, get the audible version if you like listening to stuff. But here's that clip. It covers this incident in Antioch that we just talked about. The goal, over against the Platonizing distortions, 
is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to give the worldwide inheritance, see Romans chapter 4 verse 13, to his entire single family. The problem is not the general problem of human sin, or indeed of the death that it incurs. The problem is that God made promises not only to Abraham, but through Abraham to the world. And if the promise-bearing people fall under the Deuteronomic curse, as Deuteronomy itself insists that they will, the promises cannot get out to the wider world. The means is then that Jesus, as Israel's Messiah, bears Israel's curse in order to undo the consequences of sin and exile, and so to break the power of the present evil age once and for all. When sins are forgiven, the powers are robbed of their power. Once we understand how the biblical narrative actually works, so as to see the full force of saying that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Bible, the admittedly complex passage can be seen to be fully coherent. Paul has already summed all this up in one of his most memorable statements of the effect of Jesus' death in chapter 2, the long autobiographical opening to the letter. Much of chapters 1 to 2 is Paul's own story, highlighting the points of special relevance to the urgent problem in Galatia, reaches its climax with the confrontation in Antioch, where Paul opposed Peter for his church-dividing behavior. Peter, anxious about the impression given to visitors from Jerusalem when they saw him eating alongside Messiah-believing but uncircumcised non-Jews, had separated himself from the Gentiles. We must, it seems, assume that this resulted in the Jewish believers eating at one table, or perhaps in one room, and the non-Jewish believers eating somewhere else. Since the unity of the church has not until comparatively recently been a topic of apparent urgency in modern Western Christianity, this passage has been read as though it is about something else, perhaps about the mechanism of salvation. But Paul's emphasis is on the fact that the Messiah has one family, not two, and that to deny this is to deny the gospel itself, to suggest that the Messiah did not need to be crucified. Well, last thing, last thing. Remember, the theories of atonement, that's not an open theist issue. There's, there's open theists who disagree with uh, what I say, with what N.T. Wright says, with what penal substitutionary atonement or moral government theology says. There's, there's a lot of different views, a lot of different views. It's not a make or break open theist issue. There's no one right view that all open theists have to pick this view. Like Boyd, I think, has a Christological view of everything that happens throughout the Bible. You don't have to accept these ideas in order to be an open theist. They're just, they're all options. If you have any questions on this podcast or on anything, just send that to GodIsOpen, all one word, questions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.